depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plenteous redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Very good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now to bless us in our review of your word. We thank you, Lord, for its power and beauty. The afternoon, Lord, is sometimes a difficult time for us, but we pray that you would keep us stirred up by your spirit and in awe and wonder of your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This 130th Psalm, Spurgeon divides into sections, and he divides it in this way. He says, the first two verses reveal an intense desire. And the next two are a humble confession of repentance and faith. That's verses 3 and 4. <coughs> Excuse me. In verses 5 and 6, waiting watchfulness is declared and resolved upon. And in the last two verses, joyful expectation, both for himself and all Israel, find expression. Really a good division of the psalm and uh, helps us to get an idea of what we're looking at here. In the first two verses, we really have, uh, and really down through verse 3, the plight of the sinner. And the plight of the sinner is found beginning in verse 1 down through verse 3, where we have, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist here does not underestimate the stain and the character of sin. But so often people do. They don't take it for what it really is, even as we talked about earlier today. Sin doesn't serve. Sin enslaves. And every turn out of the path of God's prescribed way of righteousness is an act of lawlessness, an act of lawlessness that dishonors God and defiles the soul. And as such, it grieves the believer when we find ourselves being convicted of sin by reading through God's word or even by the impression of his truth on our hearts or even while we're in prayer. Um, when that conviction comes upon us, we grieve and we groan that we've offended God and stepped out of his way. As I read over these words, these first few verses of Psalm 130, and as I studied them, preparing for this afternoon, 
they seem to me to be at the heart of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. If you turn over there now to Romans chapter 7 or look at it there in the notes, Paul writes there, beginning in verse 14, this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or as we read here in Psalm 130, who will deliver me out of this pit and get me out of these depths that I find myself in? Paul was crying out of the depths of his own depravity, but he was not without hope. It wasn't a hope in himself, but a hope in the mercy of the Lord. He believed that the Lord heard his cry for mercy and answered him. And rather than tracing out every one of his iniquities and sins, that the Lord would deliver him from his body of death by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I was heartened in my impression of that when I read later in another commentary that when Luther was asked, Which of the Psalms were the greatest Psalms? His answer was the Pauline Psalms. And someone said, okay, well, could you tell us what the Pauline Psalms are? Because Luther didn't say which ones they were. And so he listed them then. And he called the Pauline Psalms Psalm 23, which we read earlier this morning, Psalm 51, David's great psalm of cry for repentance and forgiveness. This psalm, Psalm 130, and then Psalm 143. Now, part of the wickedness of sinful men and women is their refusal to acknowledge the goodness and the mercy of God. The refusal to acknowledge that. They would rather revel in their sin. They would rather deny their their sin at all or even try to hide their sin than dare to make an appeal to the mercy of the Lord for the pardon of their sins. And that's part of the wickedness of their attitude towards the Lord. The Lord says that he is a God of mercy. And in effect, 
men and women answer back and say, no, you're a God who only wants to condemn and to punish me for my sin. And so I want nothing to do with you. Calvin says, few are persuaded that the very grace they need and the very grace that God promises will be given to them. And so they actually look at him as a liar because he's saying he's a God of mercy and he's a God of forgiveness. And they're saying, no, you're not. You're a God who condemns and judges. They're convinced that they will be denied that love and that mercy despite the fact that God offers it and does it freely and does it often. Psalm 68, verse 20. What does it say? Our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. If you're someone convinced of your sin and you're, you're anxious to know how to be saved, where else should you go but to the God of salvation? And yet they, they will not. They draw back from it. In Psalm 86, in verse 5, it says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And the sinner who refuses the gospel says, no, no, it's not, that's not who you are. That's, I can't come near you. I can't come to you. I have to flee from you. I have to deny you. Not acknowledging that he is this God who is full, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And we could go on multiplying verses. And as we do, if we, if we were to do that, I think we would eventually come to the conclusion that the psalmist comes to in Psalm 107, where in verse 8 he says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Why are they spurning why are they refusing to acknowledge this message of God's mercy and forgiveness and love why are they turning from it and rejecting it he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor, convicted them. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, <coughs> and he saved them. Saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. The psalmist, says Calvin, could not think of God without thinking of his mercy and grace. That's the theme here in Psalm 130. I'm in this pit, but I appeal to your mercy. I cry to your mercy. I'm in these depths, but I cry out to you for mercy. I appeal to your love. 
I appeal to your forgiving spirit. He couldn't think of God without thinking of him as a God of mercy and grace. The psalmist says, in effect, the very fact that you are God is to me a sure guarantee that you will be merciful. You can never serve God aright unless you know that he is gracious and merciful, says Calvin. Now, for the purpose of our study this afternoon, we're going to skip the fourth verse for a moment, and we'll save that for last. And look now at verses 5 through 7. In verse 5 of Psalm 130, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What wonderful promises set forth there. What glorious hope. Now, what the psalmist says here, as this section begins, is, that he's bound up all his hopes and expectations for forgiveness and redemption in the steadfast love and the promises offered by the Lord. It's an act of faith. We often talk about how one has to let go of every other support and hope and trust Christ alone. For his or her salvation. And that's very true. And it's one way to look at the matter. But that same truth is being addressed by the psalmist here in a slightly different way. And it's important that we see this other way of looking at it. It doesn't picture, he doesn't picture one dropping everything and trusting God alone but rather one gathering up everything and then all his hopes, all his expectations, and placing them all in God alone. That's what he's doing. So it's not letting go of everything else and trusting in God alone in this scene, although that's a legitimate picture. But in this picture, it's him gathering up every hope, every expectation he has for deliverance, every hope he has for joy, every hope he has for satisfaction, and putting it all into this one thing, his faith and trust in God and his love. Perhaps it it helps to think of it in this way. I'm in a pit, and I'm going to die. And I need to get out of that pit. And I am going to trust his mercy to deliver me from that pit. I have so many sins that if they were all marked out, I would be doomed forever. And though I deserve to languish and die, I am going to put all my trust in his mercy, and his promise for my redemption and the deliverance from all my sins and for my escape. I need a mercy that will provide for me 
things I can never hope for otherwise. Because if God were to mark out my sins, if he were to trace, as it were, every time I departed from the path of righteousness, and he were to trace that out with his finger, I would be hopeless. I would have no hope. I would have no, no hope of hope. I need a mercy for all those things. And so I'm putting all of that on him. I am going to trust that his mercy will do all of that for me. We don't like to put all our eggs in one basket. You ever hear that expression? You don't put all your eggs in one basket because something might happen to that one basket and you'll lose all your eggs. This is just the opposite of that. We're putting all our eggs, as it were, in this one basket. The promise of love and forgiveness from the God of mercy. And everything goes in there. Octavius Winslow said this. He says it so beautifully. Here is the gracious soul hanging in faith upon God in Christ Jesus. Upon the veracity, that's the truthfulness of God, to fulfill his promise. Upon the power of God to help him in difficulty. Upon the wisdom of God to counsel him in perplexity. Upon the love of God to shield him in danger. Upon the omniscience of God to guide him with his eye. And upon the omnipresence of God to cheer him with his presence. At all times and in all places his son, and shield. That's what we're doing. We're putting all of that hope for all of those things in this God who loves us and gave himself for us in the person of his son. And that brings us back to the heart of the matter here. Forgiveness and reverence. Back to verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Spurgeon relates the experience of uh, John Owen in regard to this verse. And Owen lived 340 years ago, but and that might seem like ancient history, but the time here is immaterial. Owen was meeting with a man, and this man was seeking to clarify his own hope of salvation. He was trying to just uh, sort of strengthen his own confidence in the gospel and in his own profession of faith. And in the course of the counseling, Owen asked him to explain how he hoped to go to God. To go to God in prayer and to go to God at his death. He said, what do you, how do you hope to go to God? And the man answered, in a way that he thought would satisfy Owen, he said, through the mediator, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Owen thought for a moment, and he said, that's the right answer. But I want you to understand, he said, that approaching God by Christ, the mediator, was something much different than most people understand. And Owen went on to explain that he had preached Christ for a long time with nothing more than a theological understanding of that idea of approaching 
God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And then Owen said, God was pleased to allow me to fall desperately ill. So ill that he thought he was going to die. And when he was on that brink where he thought that his life was over, he found himself just filled, overcome with fear and horror and a sense of darkness. Now, this was a man who was noted for his preaching of the gospel and for his setting forth Christ as the mediator. He had done it for years. But all of a sudden, here he was on on the doorstep of death, and he realized that this horror was overcoming him and this darkness and this fear. And while he was in the throes of that, the Spirit of the Lord pressed this verse into his heart and his mind. This verse, with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared or reverenced. And it was the Spirit doing that that delivered him from that darkness and from that fear and from that dread. And he recovered from this illness, and the first thing he did was preach a series of messages on Psalm 130, verse 4. I'm not going to preach a series of messages on it, but he did. Powerful messages on this one verse. So what's the secret of this verse? Why did it have that kind of effect on Owen in that context? Well, one of the things that's special about this verse is that it sets forth the character of God. You notice, first of all, that it acknowledges the kind and gracious character of the Lord. With him is forgiveness. He is the one in whom forgiveness can be found. It establishes the fact that this merciful kindness is a part of who he is, apart from any outward influence or force. You've probably had many opportunities to forgive people in different circumstances. Sometimes you've done it freely and happily and lovingly, and sometimes you've done it grudgingly. And you've done it because you knew you had to, and not necessarily because you wanted to. And sometimes you say, I will forgive, but I'll never forget. And that's the way you respond. This is not who God is. God, with him is forgiveness. It is a part of who he is as God. He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When he appears before Moses, and that's where that quote is from, when Moses says, let me see your glory, when he exposes that glory to Moses, where does he begin? 
Not with I'm a God of wrath and justice and might and power. It begins with the fact that he is a God who is slow to anger. A God who is gracious. A God who abounds in steadfast love. A God who forgives. That's how he portrays himself. Do you want to see my glory? Here it is. I am the God who forgives. I am the God who loves. We know that the Lord could bury any one of us in our sins. The psalmist says that here, right? He says, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand? The Lord could bury any one of us in our sins. There's not a righteous soul here that could stand that kind of judgment or scrutiny. He could do it. He could do it knowing that we're weak, knowing that we're inclined to trespass and guilty in ways we don't even realize. But he's pleased not to do so, but rather to provide a redeemer Sufficient to cover all your sin. That's who he is. That's who he is as God. Paul says in Romans, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience, excuse me, disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the result of his desire to forgive. With him, beloved, is the sort of mercy that doesn't come from ignoring our sins, but the kind of mercy that comes from exposing them, and then, as Hayward says, drowning them in large streams from the ever-flowing and overflowing fountain of his mercy, mercy, both to cleanse and to cure us. Think of that kind of mercy. It's not the kind of mercy that says, we're just going to pretend like you never sin. And I know you're bad, but I'm just going to pretend like you're not. It's not like that. It's the kind of mercy that exposes our sins brings us to conviction, brings our hearts to repentance, and then as we're in that depth, as we're under that conviction, pours out these large streams of ever-flowing, overflowing mercy and love and forgiveness on us by his grace. The truth is, beloved, that your God is far more ready to pardon and forgive than men and women are to repent. And this is the God of which Micah said, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. But the secret of this runs even deeper. Forgiveness is so much a part of who he is 
that he himself has undertaken all the work to make it possible. You see that? Forgiveness is so much a part of who he is that he is the one who has done everything that needs to be done in order for him to show you forgiveness. You're not doing anything. He's doing, he has done it all so that you can then access it and enjoy it and rejoice in it. If it depended upon any other, your forgiveness depended on any other, then this God, it would not be available to you. You would not know forgiveness. You only know it because he made it possible, because of who he is. And then there's the nature of this forgiveness. Every day, you come to the mercy seat, a welcome and expected guest. With what other creature do you enjoy that relationship? Where every day, you're welcome. You're expected. You're free to come. You might say, well, with your spouse. And that may be true, especially if your spouse has spent some time away. You're always glad to have them come back. But there's nobody else that we have this relationship with, where we are welcome and expected. And you have offended no one more than this God. You have slighted no friend more than you have slighted this God. You have no other right to approach but by the forgiveness brought for you, bought for you at the dearest price by the one who loves you. And you have this freedom. And, and what does Hebrews say? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I was with my brother once while my parents were out of town and my brother after church Sunday morning took us to a friend's house and I had never been to this house before a friend of his and my brother knocked on the door and the father of the house came to the door and he went and he yelled back to the kitchen it's Bob Fisher that guy that keeps coming here to eat and he's brought another freeloader with him. Now, he was only kidding. But you can imagine for me, you know, hearing this said, it's never that way with your Lord. It's never, oh, no, here she comes again. Oh, no, here he comes again. We're always welcome. And lastly, look why you found this glorious forgiveness. That you might reverence, love, and obey him. Now, usually it's justice that produces fear or reverence. 
But the truth is that when we understand more regarding the intensity and the power of this grace, it's a fearful thing in its beauty and in its wonder. It's driven by love. It's sealed with the blood of the Lamb. It is preserved by omnipotence. There's nothing like it. You and I have found this kind of forgiveness. It is awesome. It is stunning. The hammer of the law may break the icy heart of man with terrors and horrors, and yet it may remain ice still, unchanged. But when the fire of love kindly thaws its ice, it is changed and dissolved, says song of the Lamb is the song of Moses. It's wonderful to me that those two are joined together that way. But remember what it is. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Truth and the holiness of God will be part of what brings the world to its knees when, they, when Christ returns. But you know what the other part will be? The love and forgiveness shown to you and shown to me. When they see that there's one just like me, that he's found forgiveness or she's found forgiveness, their wonder at the work and the love and the mercy of the Lamb. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit of forgiveness. Oh Lord, we can't find the words to praise you enough because we know that with you there is forgiveness. Oh Lord, may we reverence you. May we love you. May we hear you. May we obey you. May we glorify you as those who have found that precious forgiveness. Please, Lord, grant us that for Christ's sake. Let's stand and sing together hymn 472.